preach uh, tonight, I immediately started to feel really anxious. And the reason why is because Hebrews is actually really difficult. I don't know if you guys have caught on to that at all. Uh, it's a really difficult book. It's not easy to preach on, much less to read at all. And there's actually a couple different reasons for this. So I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. But not only that, but within the New Testament, there's actually different levels of Greek that some of the books are written uh, at. So for instance, like the Gospel of John is like high school Greek, whereas the book of Luke or the book of Acts, that's kind of like graduate level Greek. And then First Peter is like what they call shotgun Greek. It's very kind of rudimentary. Well, Hebrews is actually considered to be PhD level Greek. Um, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews was really, really smart. Um, there's a couple different theories about who that might be. And uh, because of that, when it's translated, you can tell that there's these really complicated phrases. You know, and it's not always easy to decipher. Sometimes you've got to read it, you know, like again and again. Um, not only that, but Hebrews is probably a sermon that was actually turned into a letter. And so it's funny because I'm here, right, about to preach a sermon on Hebrews. So essentially I'm preaching a sermon on a sermon, which is a little bit weird, right? And uh, not only that, but Hebrews is very, according to its name, it's very Old Testament centered, which means that there's a lot of things, a lot of themes that are, are taken from the Old Testament that we need, we need to have an awareness of, right, if we're going to understand this. But the most important thing that you guys need to keep in mind about Hebrews, just as a kind of a review, is it's all about how Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. And specifically, Jesus is greater than the law or the things that came before. He's writing to an audience of Hebrews. He's writing to an audience that was familiar with the temple, was familiar with the Old Testament worship. And his whole argument is Jesus is better than those things. And the way that he gets there is that he's trying to say that Jesus is better than the law and the temple and the priesthood and all the things in the Old Testament because those things were meant to point to Christ in the first place. And we actually see this in the way that the book is structured. So I don't know if you guys remember, but chapters 1 and 2, Jesus, it, it, it starts off how Jesus is God's very own son, and he's superior to the angels, right? And we read that and we're like, what the heck is this all about? He's talking about angels. But the reason why is because for the Hebrews, right, like that was actually a really important thing. And then he goes on from that and talks about how Jesus is superior to Moses. Well, why is he talking about Moses? And the reason why is because for the Hebrews, Moses was seen as this figure that was the deliverer, the giver of the law, right? He was a supreme figure. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, as great as Moses is, Moses was meant to point forward to Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 10, he kind of goes into this long explanation of how Jesus has a greater priesthood. He mediates a better priesthood for us. And he's a greater high priest. And that brings us to our text tonight. All right, so we are in Hebrews 7, verses 26 to 28. So you guys can turn there real quick. Hebrews 7, 26 to 28. And let's read it together. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all 
when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is God's word. So uh, why don't we pray together? Father, thank you for Jesus. You have given him to us, Lord, as and have said that he mediates a better priesthood for us, that on his merit, on his blood, because he is a greater high priest, a greater sacrifice for sin, God, it is on account of him that we can stand before you, uh, that we have hope in the midst of trials and hardships. God, I pray for us, Lord, as we dive into your word. I'm not aware, Lord, of all the things that uh, people might be dealing with, and people might be thinking through, Lord, uh, to those who I'm speaking, but Lord, we know that you do. And so God, I ask that your spirit would move, help this word that you have spoken, Lord, to come alive and to bring encouragement, Lord, where there needs to be encouragement, rebuke where there needs to be rebuke. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us in this time. Your servants are listening. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I was saying, Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. Now, it's, it's funny because out of all the comparisons of how Jesus is superior, chapters 4 through 10 focuses on his priesthood. And that's interesting because out of all the sections, right, comparing, comparing Jesus to angels, to Moses, the section on Jesus' priesthood is the longest. He spends the most amount of time on that. Now, why is that? Why spend the majority of your argument talking about how Jesus has a superior priesthood. Well, the reason is because much of the identity of the Hebrew people and how they understood themselves was actually defined by the priesthood. Now, we actually understand this. You might not think you do, but you, but you do. Because as Christians, right, it's true, right? We, we look back on the day that we were saved or the day that we got baptized. And right? we look at those things and those are major events that we often look back to. But generally... Right? The way that you and I understand ourselves as Christians is by the day-to-day regular things that we do. Right? So we understand ourselves as Christians by the fact that we go to church every week. We understand ourselves as Christians by the fact that we're in a small group, studying the word with other believers, right? that we're in communities, uh, that we commit ourselves to prayer and to reading our Bibles, right? confessing our sins to one another. Those are the day-to-day things that as Christians we're involved in, right? Well, the day-to-day was defined for a lot of the Jewish people in the Hebrews by the fact that there was a priesthood that mediated on their account for their sins, right? You offered sacrifices daily, right? This was something that was built into their routines, And much of how they understood themselves was likewise. So though Moses was a central figure and the Passover, right, Jesus delivering them out of Moses, the central event, the temple and the priesthood is what defined them in a sense. And this is relevant because Hebrews was probably written to Jewish believers before 70 AD. Now that that date's actually important. And the reason why is because the temple was still in existence before 70 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans came and actually destroyed the temple. They literally tore it down, brick by brick. And because there was still a temple, there was still a high priest. And because there was still a high priest and still a priesthood, there were people offering sacrifices for sins. And because these Hebrews, right, had been saved out of this old system and they were experiencing persecution and they were going through all this stuff, there's this temptation for them, 
right? It's like, man, this is really hard. Maybe we should go back <laughs> to the way that things used to be, right? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't hold to our devotion so much. And so the writer is like, no, don't do that, right? Don't, don't go back. And you guys might think, like, how could you go back to the priesthood, right? How could you do that in the light of Jesus? And I want to contend, like, we kind of do that all the time, right? Like, Jesus saves us and we're in these communities, and yet we go back to that relationship. We know we shouldn't be in it. We go back to that group of friends. We know that we shouldn't be around because it's comfortable, because in a sense it has our identity, because we don't know what life looks like without those things because they've been in our lives so long. And so to get out of it, it's like we don't even have the capacity to understand that. Right? So before we heap judgment on these people, we should realize, man, we actually have the same tendencies, right? Well, Hebrews is written to remind them that Jesus is worth it. You don't have to go back. And this passage is specifically drawing us to that fact by showing us three things, all right? And here are the three things. Number one, Jesus himself is our perfect high priest. Number two, Jesus himself is our perfect sacrifice. And number three, Jesus himself is our perfect intercession. So he's our perfect sacrifice. He's our perfect, or excuse me, perfect high priest, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect intercession. All right, let's jump into this. Number one, Jesus himself is our perfect high priest. Look with me in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, notice the phrase there. It was indeed fitting that Jesus be these things. Now, what exactly does that mean, that it was fitting? And what it means is, it was fitting that Jesus be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, because that is exactly what you and I need Jesus to be. In order to be saved from sin and to persevere in the face of sin. Jesus has to have these characteristics in order for his priesthood to be effective. It was fitting because it was what we needed. But that begs the question, right? A lot of times we make these assumptions when, when, and we, we have to actually jump into those. It begs the question, why have a high priest offer sacrifices for sin in the first place? You guys ever thought about that? Like, why did God set up the entire system of literally slaying animals and splattering its blood on an altar in the first place. Why do that? Why make a big deal of that? And I think in order to answer that question, why a sacrificial system? Why the Levitical priesthood? Why all these things? We actually have to answer a more foundational question. And the question we really have to ask is, well, what exactly is sin? how are we supposed to think about sin? That it requires a response of death, right? Literally pouring blood out. So how are we supposed to think about it? The entire message of the Bible could probably be summed up in attempting to solve one colossal problem. Man cannot live with God Yet man cannot live without God. 
man can't live without God because there's no life outside of God, right? So without God, our lives will literally shrivel. Uh, we can't live without him because he's the source of all life. And yet at the same time, man can't be with God because our sin prohibits us from being with him. And so how do we solve this conundrum? What do you do? Well, the answer is you have to deal with sin. You have to purge it. Yet something I've discovered is that we often think very wrongly or at the very least very shallowly about sin. Right? And the longer we think wrongly about sin, the longer that we'll completely miss the point of what Jesus accomplished in order to save us from sin. Right? If you get sin wrong, then you get Jesus' atonement for sin wrong. And so we need to define what is sin, what makes it so destructive, in order to understand how was Jesus' sacrifice sufficient for sin? What did it accomplish? All right? And... We think wrongly about sin. And let me just give you some examples real quick. Number one, a lot of people think sin is doing what God doesn't like. I mean, I hear this all the time, right? Oh, God doesn't like that. It's a sin. Guys, sin is not doing what God doesn't like. Right? Sin is real. It's palpable. It's, it's substantive. It's, it's not simply something that exists because God feels a certain way about things, right? Sin isn't a violation of God's preferences it's a violation of him, of who he is himself, right? God is holy. He is totally set apart. He is totally other. First Timothy 6.16 says, he dwells in unapproachable light. Think about that for a second. Think about a million atomic bombs going off right in front of you. Think about the sun exploding in a supernova. You don't just stick your hand into that. Right? You don't just approach that. Trying to approach God in your sin is like plunging an ice cube into a volcano. Think about that. It doesn't happen, right? It's not that God doesn't like sin. It's literally God cannot be with sin because if sin were to meet God, it would be eradicated. It would be completely destroyed and the only way to make sure that you and I aren't eradicated with it is to purge the sin from our lives. It's real. God is holy. It's a violation against who he is. And it cannot be in our lives or we would utterly be destroyed. No one could look at God and live. You guys, some of you guys were here on Sunday, right? Talking about Isaiah 6. God's holy throne and how there's literally angels that need to cover themselves with wings because God's holiness is so pure. And literally all day, they just cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they just repeat it again and again and again. That's the measure of God's holiness. So number one, right, sin is something that God doesn't like. That's not true. But another misconception is a lot of people think, you know, sin is like a personal problem, right? Like it's a skeleton in the closet. And guys, that's, we all know that's not true. We all know that's not true. Sin is communal. And, and what that means is that sin affects everyone. It has ripple effects that if left unchecked, it's going to create chaos and havoc. One of my favorite Old Testament theologians is this dude named Walter Brueggemann. And the way he speaks of sin in, in, in this theological handbook that he wrote is, 
he talks about it as nuclear fallout. That where sin is, right, it, it has to be dealt with right then and there because if it's left unchecked, it's going to corrupt everything that's going to spread. And if it isn't quarantined, then sin will literally destroy everything in his path. And you know, a really good example of this, if you want to see this at work, I encourage you guys, go serve at RFK for a week and you will know that sin is communal. You know, you see these kids and it's like literally like I'm walking one of these days and this one kid drop kicked another kid, right? Punched him when he, when he fell on the ground, tore to- the toy out of his hand, called him a little B word and then ran off. And I'm literally standing there like, oh my gosh, what just happened, right? And I'm like, what do I do, right? And, uh, and it, it, it's really easy, you know, in that moment to think like, you just look at the kid and I'm like, wow, you're just a punk. But you know, the reality is, is the reason why he did that and the reason why he talks like that and the reason why a lot of these kids display a lot of these behaviors is because the homes that they come from and the environments that they come from and the things that have been modeled for them and the things that they've been taught and the sin around them has literally trained them to be that way. They are that way because sin is destructive and it's communal and it was left unchecked in their lives and the brokenness that they've experienced from being abandoned, from being neglected, from being abused takes root in their heart and then they hurt other people who in turn hurt other people who in turn hurt other people and the cycle continues. Sin is communal. It's not a personal problem. It's not one person's problem, just something that they're dealing with. It's communal. And another misconception people have is that sin is primarily external and it's about bad actions that people do, right? And we hear this all the time, like, oh, people are essentially good. They just make bad choices. That's not true. That's not true. Sin isn't primarily about your actions, right? It's about the fact that our hearts are wicked. And the reality of sin is that it isn't a choice simply, but it's a corruption and it enslaves you and you can't get away from it. That's why when Paul writes in Romans 6, verses 6 through 7, he says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self is crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's not simply so that, you know, you can learn to make better choices. No, it's so that you would no longer be enslaved because sin enslaves you. My point in all this is that the priesthood and the sacrifices and the blood on the altar, these were things that God gave his people in order to deal with these realities about sin. The fact that it's communal, right? The fact that it's a heart issue. And the message of the priesthood and the sacrifices was really clear. The message was there's only one way to deal with sin, which by definition is death. And the only way to deal with it is to destroy it with life. Blood has to be spilled. And it's either your blood or someone else's. And the solution was the atonements, 
the atonement sacrifices, the priesthood, making atonement for sin. And since God is holy, that means that the one mediating that sacrifice, right, the one administering it, the one that's standing in the gap between God and man, the high priest, that man has to be holy as God is holy. Because he's doing two things at once, right? He's representing God to the people, but he's also representing the people to God. And that's why the high priest literally had the most dangerous job in all of Israel. Because it's a very dangerous place to stand between a very holy God and a very sinful people. That's why on Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, when the high priest walked in to the Holy of Holies, they tied a rope around his ankle. Because if he didn't do all the procedures just correctly, or if he had some hidden sin in his life, like he was robbing people or he had some sexual immorality, God would strike him dead. And when he fell to the floor, I don't know if this is in the Bible necessarily, but I think it's from Jewish tradition. They had bells attached to him. And so when he hit the floor, they, they heard those bells like ringling. They knew, oh shoot, God just struck this guy dead. And they would literally have to drag him out by his ankle. And the message was clear, right? Don't mess with me. God is holy. The priest had the most dangerous job in Israel because he had to be holy as God. And that's why in Hebrews 7.26, it says that it was fitting. It was fitting that Jesus as the high priest be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens because these are all characteristics of who? Of God, of God himself. And yet the problem was that every single high priest that ever existed, they couldn't fulfill this requirement. Look with me in the next verse, verse 27. He has no need like those high priests, meaning every other high priest, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins and for those of the people. Right? But the contrast here is that Jesus is the perfect and greater high priest who's able to be exactly as God is and exactly as we are, fully God, fully man, all at once, the high priest we need to deal with sin and reconcile us back to God. And that's why, and that's because Jesus is God himself, right, in the flesh. He's exactly what we need. Why is the incarnation important? That Jesus is fully God, fully man. God robing himself in humanity for our sake. Well, the reason why it's important is because he's our perfect high priest. He's able to mediate for us at the right hand of the Father. So number one, Jesus himself is our perfect high priest. He's able to administer the sacrifice for sin. But not only that, not only is he the perfect high priest, number two, he's also our perfect sacrifice for sin. Not only is he the one that administers the sacrifice for sin, he also is a sacrifice. You know, recently, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we've had a lot of fires here, right, in Northern California. Uh, like a few months back, we had that huge fire in Santa Rosa. Last Friday, we had a fire in the Concord Hills. And actually, there's a fire going on right now, which happened after I wrote this, but it's up in like Yellow County or something like that, right? And so there's all these fires that are just raging all over Northern California. 
and it's funny because I was talking with my dad the other day, and we were talking about the fires back in, in, in Santa Rosa, and I was telling him how frustrating I, frustrated I was with the way that uh, the news people would talk about the fires. Because literally, like, the news people would come, they would come on the screen, and they'd be like, the fires are raging in, in Santa Rosa. But, it's like, but we have great news. It's 5% contained. And I'm like sitting there thinking, 5%? And how many acres is it covering? It's like 5% contained? This is supposed to comfort me that the fire is 5% contained? And it was like, literally, that would happen. It's like the next day, it'd be like less percentage. It'd be like, it's, now it's 4% contained. We don't know what happened to the 1%. Apparently, you know. Like, what, I don't know. Like, it's just mind-boggling me that they think that this is comforting, right? That, that 5% is somehow supposed to make me sleep better. And, I, and yet, that's exactly what the issue was with the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? Because no matter how many animals you slaughtered, no matter how many day, days of atonement you had, no matter how much blood you splattered on the side of the altar, at the end of the day, it was simply containment. It's like putting a Band-Aid on heart cancer. It wasn't enough to deal with the root issue because the problem of sin, again, isn't in your actions, it's in your heart. If a river is poisoned, getting rid of bodies downstream isn't going to help anything. And neither is pouring in the antidote downstream, right? You have to go to the source, the root. And we all understand this. As a matter of fact, even the Jewish people understood it. You know, I don't know if you guys know this, I, I, I spent a semester studying abroad in Israel. And in Israel, I had the opportunity to talk to like this, this Jewish rabbi scholar dude. And I had a burning question that I, I wanted to ask someone right, for the longest time. And that question was, what do you guys do to deal with sin in light of the fact that you don't have a temple anymore? Right? Because when I read the Old Testament, God gave this Levitical system to deal with sin. Um, but that's not around anymore. Right? So what do you guys do? And his answer actually really surprised me. It was not what I expected. And he looked at me, this Jewish rabbi did, and he said, he said, oh, the, the, the sacrifices aren't actually necessary. And I was like, what? I was like, what do you mean they're not necessary? And he proceeded to tell me the point of the sacrifices, right, was to create repentance in the hearts of those who are practicing it. And so now that the, the, the temple has been done away with, in, in his mind, although there are arguments against that, but now that the temple has been done away with, what's important is that people have a posture of repentance. Because, and his whole argument was, it's not about the sacrifices themselves, it's about people being changed from the inside out. And I remember looking at him and thinking, okay, there's two issues I have with this. Number one, Leviticus 17.11 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's in the Old Testament. And so it's kind of hard to get over around that. And I actually said that to him, and he kind of was like, mm, you know, so, okay, whatever. But number two, you know, it, it, it really begs the question, um, okay, so the goal is to create change, heart change. Um, 
but how exactly are people going to change and do what's right? Because I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, people don't naturally do that. And as a matter of fact, people, even with the deterrence that we have, with laws and all this stuff, people still find ways to do evil. You know, one of the guys that I served at RFK with is a dude named Matt Allendorf. He's an Antioch police officer. And remember, on Thursday night, we were sitting down with him, me, Brent, um, Julius, and him. And he was just telling us story after story after story after story of all the crazy things that he has to deal with working in investigations in Antioch. How many of you guys live in Antioch? If you guys, you know, Matt was like talking to us. He's like, man, if people knew the sheer amount of depravity that goes on on a day-to-day basis, they would be shocked. The amount of sexual abuse, the amount of domestic violence, the amount of just brokenness. And he's like, you know, we have these laws. He's like, imagine if the police wasn't there, right? It would just be havoc everywhere. But even with a judicial system and a criminal justice system, which is there to protect people against from doing evil, people still find ways to be evil. How are people's hearts going to change, right? And that's just a, a practical example. What about the biblical evidence? Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is our state as human beings. That's the curse of sin. So who is going to change the heart? And not only that, but the law itself was meant to show that sin is a hard issue. You know, some of you guys knew I was a teacher at Berean. I think I used this example last time, but when I'm teaching through the Old Testament, I give them an assignment. I say, okay, guys, look, I hand out a piece of paper. It's got all 613 Levitical laws. I'm like, you need to keep all these for one day or you fail the class. Good luck. And it's amazing to see them try, right? Some of them are just like, ah, whatever, I'm not even going to try, right? This one girl, I feel so bad. Oh, my gosh. She literally tried so hard. Like, there's this one law where you're not supposed to wear a, fa- uh, a clothes made of more than one fabric. And she wore, like, this track suit. <laughs> like, all day, you know. And she was like, oh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm trying my best, right? But obviously, they all fail. They all fail. And so I'm like, all right, guys, check your grades. And literally, I give them all meth. And I make them check their grades to, to make them see that they're getting an F. Right? And everyone's looking at me like, oh, you know, I was like, but think, I said, Jesus fulfilled the law, and so you get the great excused. And I remember, yeah, <laughs> and I remember one time this, this girl goes, wait, can you give me like 100 on the assignment? And I told her, no. <laughs> I was like, you didn't fulfill the assignment. Jesus did. You're getting excused. Not, not 100, you know. And she was all salty about that, but whatever. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I point out in the assignment, I said, you know, how many of you guys, like, we're thinking like, oh, like I failed because I, I ate cheese and meat together. 
or like I failed because I did this or I failed because I did this. And they were like, yeah, like that law was crazy, you know, this and that. And I was, I was like, you know, what's the first law? Anybody know? Hmm. Have no idols. Serve no other gods. And I was like, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of idolatry in your life. And obeying that law is not an action that you can do on your own. It's a work that the God, that God has to do in your heart to transform you from the inside out. And I was like, you guys are worried about all these other laws, eating, not eating bacon, <laughs> you know, wearing certain types of clothes. And I was like, you, have, you, you missed the very first law. You're not supposed to have any other gods before Yahweh. And as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, you know, God gave the entire law. What was the first law the Hebrews broke? They made a golden calf and they worshiped it. They couldn't get past the first law. What makes you think that you're going to do better than they? When they had God revealed in a pillar of fire and split the sea in half before them. You think you're going to fare better than them? And yet Hebrews 7.27 shows us that Jesus' atonement isn't about containing sin, but about going to the root. Look with me. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. How was it once for all? Jesus' sacrifice was final because it accomplished something that no other sacrifice could. Namely, it dealt with sin totally and finally by going to the root, which was the heart. And that's why, if you guys look in Hebrews 8 in the next chapter, when it talks about Jesus' atoning work for sin, his sacrifice for sin, it quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which was the new covenant. And it was, quotes it to show how Jesus, as a perfect sacrifice, did what the first covenant could not. Let me read it for you. For he finds fault with them, them meaning the old way of doing things, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they, they did not continue in my covenant, right? They failed because they disobeyed. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And listen closely. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is good news, is it not? And only Jesus as our perfect high priest to mediate for us and only Jesus as our perfect sacrifice for sin once and for all could accomplish this. But not only is he our perfect high priest, not only is he our perfect sacrifice, Jesus, number three, 
He's our perfect intercession. Look with me in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Okay, so immediate question. What exactly was the oath? What was the oath that God gave? This is a reference back to Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews 6, 14, God promised in an oath that he would multiply the descendants of Abraham, right? And what was the, the, the completion of that promise? The completion of that promise is ultimately by making believers of Christ, right? The true descendants of Abraham, the true offspring of Abraham, those whom he saves by faith. And remember, okay, when, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in Hebrews 6, it talks about, he says, by these two unchangeable things, meaning it's unbreakable, right? What, what is unbreakable? God's character, and number two, God's oath is unbreakable. So God's oath is unbreakable. This promise that he is going to save those by faith who are the descendants of Abraham, believers in Christ, is unbreakable. He will fulfill it. And so that begs the question, well, how is God going to assure? How is he going to actually accomplish his oath that he's going to save and sustain his people from sin? And the answer is, the oath appoints Christ. Christ is the assurance. Christ himself is the assurance that he is going to create the offspring of Abraham or that he's going to save it. Christ is the appointed one to intercede for us as high priest and he's been made perfect forever. And what that means is that his intercession for us to keep us from sin and sustain us in the face of sin is perfect, just as he has been made perfect, and it's eternal. Well, in other words, it's forever. Jesus' intercession isn't just something that happened at a point in time when he died on the cross. Jesus' intercession is something that's ongoing, it's eternal, it's happening right now. It's forever. And look, why does this matter? Okay, well, why, why is this important? Why is it relevant for us? You know, we're talking about atonement. At the heart of atonement, the idea of atonement, right? At the heart of atonement is this idea. It's this reality, right? Another life in place of yours. Does that make sense? At the heart of atonement is a reality of another life in place of yours. Instead of your life being required for you for sin, you place an ox, right? Or instead of your life being required for you for, for sin, uh, you get a spotless lamb and you sacrifice that. So it's another life for yours. But here's the problem, all right? Animals and even other human beings, they can't really give their life. They can only give some years. Right? We all belong to death. At some point, right, even if you were to sacrifice yourself for another person, you didn't really give your life. You gave some years. Because reality is you're going to die anyways. So no one can really give their life. No animal can really give their life. No person can really give their life because at the end of the day, like I said, you're, you're, you're temporal. You're temporary. <laughs> you have no life in and of yourself. But at the cross, God didn't say another life for yours. God said my life for yours. And Jesus was life. Jesus didn't just give some years. Jesus gave his very own life. He was the source of all life. 
and he gave his very own life for our death. On the cross, Jesus gave all of who he was in exchange for all that we rightly deserved. And this reality is ongoing, right? It's something that's eternal. That's what it means that he is a high priest who's been made perfect forever. I mean, guys, have you ever felt discouraged? Beat down as a Christian? You ever felt just tired? Just tired of your walk and in your walk with Christ? Struggling with sin and sick of it? Powerless in the face of circumstances you can't control? Anxious about what's coming next? Not knowing what you're going to do with your life? Not knowing where you're going to go to college? Not knowing whatever? You're beat down? You're wondering if things are ever going to get better? Sin has a hold on you. You can't seem to beat it and you're frustrated and you're tired. And then I have a word for you in light of that. Jesus spilled his blood on the altar of the cross to take your death so that you could have his very own life. And he is interceding for you right now. Think about that for a second, okay? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father pleading his very own blood on your behalf to save you and sustain you in the face of sin. It's happening right now. Do you guys realize that, that Jesus, right, was fully God and fully man? Jesus right now, in his full humanity, in his full divinity, is at God's right hand right now, pleading his blood over you to save you and sustain you from sin. He does it when you feel great in your walk, He's doing it right now if you feel weak in your walk. Jesus' intercession for you never changes. And if that is true, then hear me, okay? You can look at your anxieties. You can look at your fears. You can look at your struggles. You can look at death and all the forms that it takes in our lives. And you can know that Jesus speaks a better word for you. And what is the word that he speaks In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I stand. That, that is our hope. He intercedes for you, brothers and sisters. And if he's given us his life, his very own life, in exchange for our death, then that means that death in all the forms that seeks to enslave us, death in all the forms of relationships, cancer, 
brokenness, it will never have the final say because Jesus, Jesus is victorious over death and he intercedes for us a better word. Listen, if you're a Christian, okay, and a lot of all of this, hear me. The greatest resource that you could give anyone is your very own dependency on Jesus and what he did for you. Not any of the resources that you have, but simply your own dependency on Christ. You know, Royal Family Kids Camp, man, it was an awesome week. Um, but you know, you go there, you hear all these just heartbreaking stories. Physical abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, brokenness that you would not believe and it's funny because you talk to other campers and, and I myself felt it, you know, like all of us want to make atonement for these kids. We all look at them and we all want to say, right, we all want to go up to them and say, my life for yours, right? I'll take some of your hurts. I'll take some of your hardships. And I want to give you a part of my life. But the reality is, is that our lives aren't strong enough and they're not whole enough to give these kids anything. And it's pride to think that they are. At the end of the day, see, you and I, it doesn't matter that we had a better upbringing or whatever. At the end of the day, you and I are just as broken and in need of grace and in need of hope as they are. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves to give these kids hope. You know, I'm reminded of a line from the show 13 Reasons Why. When there's a dude, he's talking to the school counselor and the school counselor says this, this line. He says, you know, you can't love someone back to life. You can't do it. And that's absolutely true. You can't love someone back to life. But, 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 there was somebody who did love people back to life by giving his very own life. Jesus on the cross as high priest, as mediator, as his very own sacrifice and as one who stands at the right hand of the Father, he gave and he gives his very own life. And we can give these kids at RFK hope, not because our lives are sufficient, but because Jesus and his life is sufficient. And we can give them our brokenness in the way that Jesus heals us in our brokenness. And that is far greater than anything that we could give them in our own resources. The best thing that you can give other people is your dependency on Jesus interceding for you at the right hand of the Father on the basis of his own blood. And if you're not a Christian in this place, well, then hear this. Jesus spilled his very own blood on the altar of the cross to have you. He splattered his very own blood on sides of the cross to ransom you from sin. And he rose again over death, victorious to have you. And he stands at the right hand of God right now, right now. He's a better high priest. And he says, come to me. You can have rest. Don't miss out on that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you that Jesus speaks a final word 
in the face of all our sin, in the face of all our brokenness, in the face, Lord, of everything and all the ways, Lord, we've jacked up this world, you speak a final word because you offered up yourself, your very own life in exchange for our death, Lord, to have us. And God, I pray, Lord, for each and every single one of us, Lord, that the reality of grace, Lord, so many of us, Lord, all our lives, Lord, we're trained to, to try and try and earn. We try to earn love. We try to earn favor. We try to earn our significance. And yet Jesus at the cross speaks a final word, Lord, that because of you and sheer grace, Lord, we have worth as your sons and daughters because you spilled your blood to have us. And God, if there's any here, Lord, who don't know you, if there's any here who's having questions, Lord, I pray, Lord, that the grace that was shown to us, Lord, on the cross, your blood spilled for us, Lord, would remind us that in you and on the, the basis of you alone, Lord, we can have hope. And God, I pray that for all of us, Lord, who call you Lord, help us to see, Lord, and help us to remember that all our strength and all of our hope and all our life, Lord, stems from you alone and the fact that you gave your very own life for us and that you continue to do so. Lord, in Christ alone, our hope is found. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.